Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Title of today's Dharma talk is What forms should I use? What forms should you use? What what forms should you should you use? If you live in the monastery as a, a, a monastery resident or a or a monk, then you use the forms that are set up here. But, but that doesn't mean that your particular situation might might require that you do uh, modify that based on needing to work or uh, health considerations or what awareness practice uh, brings up for you individually and needs to be adjusted in some way. So the kind of military uh, um, adherence and obeying and so on, uh, don't want to emphasize that too much. But what forms should you use uh, in your, if you don't live here, if you're at home and you're you have a full-time job, or you have uh, uh, don't have much free time. Maybe you, maybe that's the case. Maybe you also have children. I mean, can, there's so many uh, differences. So the situation should be looked at by you individually. And if you have a teacher, if I'm your teacher, or if someone is your teacher, then you could work that out with them. <clears throat> if you're going to have an awareness practice, you need to you need to have forms. You need to have some way of returning to that simple situation of just observing or just watching what moves. That may involve holding very still. It may involve um, a formal sitting practice of meditation. Uh, some people say that they, they meditate by walking in the park or walking in the woods or something. I think of that more as entertainment, uh, of, of kind of enjoying the oneness of nature or whatever you what may have you. I'm not going to argue with that. If you want to do that, then you should do it. And maybe that is your form. Maybe you're not ready for this, not to say that there's some kind of status and being, uh, being a monk or whatever, maybe uh, less status. But you could, you could look at the forms if you've already been a meditator for many years. You could look at the forms that you use now. It could be maybe all you do is you get up, you sit down, you look at the wall, or maybe you look across the room. Maybe you look at your uh, shag carpeting. Probably don't have shag carpeting. But maybe you're just looking at that. Maybe you have your eyes closed. Maybe you're, maybe you're practicing, uh, practicing a, a form of uh, satipatthana. Maybe you're practicing a form of... Sh- of um, uh, Vipassana or Shini and Lakdam. Maybe you're practicing a Vipassana where you're doing some kind of scanning, body scanning. Maybe the eyes are closed. You should be the one that decides that. If you come to me and say, I don't know what to do, then I'm going to tell you, sit down, sit symmetrical, use this cosmic mudra or resting the mind, which is hands on the knees, Hold very still and look at something that's not moving. A wall is a good thing to use, and it's easy. Could be a refrigerator. Could be a closet door. Look at something where not much is happening, so that the visual consciousness is open and unreceived. But there's there's not much distraction or uh, shall we say entertainment there. So the mind tends to provide its own, which gives you more to look at as far as your object of meditation. Just a way of talking about it. And this isn't correct, whereas I'm not saying what I'm saying or teaching is correct, as opposed to everybody else. People teach all kinds of forms of awareness practice or meditation. But the final 
situation it needs to be yours, as it says in Atisha's seven points of mind training. Uh, of the two, me and you guys, or you guys and me, or you and me, you, you're the principal witness. You hold the principal witness of what this is. If you have a teacher, then you would work, talk to a teacher about that and maybe say what's happening or how that looks to you. And then the teacher might come back and might totally agree with you, probably will. Or they might take a little exception to it, depending on what you're ready to receive. If you're completely a student, then you're not only a student for your teacher, you're a student of everything. What does that mean? Receive. It doesn't mean learn in the conventional sense. That's a misunderstanding. Not of conventional learning, not of how to be a veterinarian, not of how to trim trees, not of conventional, but of well, a conventional truth, but of ultimate truth, it's necessary to work with it in, in quite a bit different way. Not focusing on results or, or uh, uh, gathering um, information or proof that you're kind of getting somewhere. Those are all spiritual materialism, basically. So there's not going to be much uh, proof uh, if you're actually uh, training your awareness to see clearly. Because that seeing clearly, what you're looking at when you're trying to see clearly is cloudy and seems insubstantial and seems very, it could be even threatening. It could be just, what? Like, what What am I doing? What, why am I doing that? What am I sitting here for? That's the beginning of awareness when you start actually questioning the sitting practice of meditation itself. And if you can keep going, which quite often people will go to something more entertaining, they'll go to mantras or they'll go to... Uh, different mudras or other uh, going to yoga or something where you actually get to change your posture quite a bit. Again, not incorrect. I'm not making fun of anybody or criticizing anyone. You should do it. You should decide what you're going to do next with your uh, awareness practice, your spiritual path. It needs to be up to you. So that being said, you to use the contrast, if you move into the monastery and become a resident, then you need to observe, or you could say follow the forms that are set up for people in the monastery. There's only a, what a dozen people live here, so it's not real popular. Uh, who wants to just give their life over to looking at a wall all day long? Not many. And of course, it isn't just wall gazing. There's lots of other practices that are... Uh, here also and in the monastery, the different forms. But you could actually, through practicing meditation, you could practice this form or perhaps other forms, and then you could you could understand what you need to really do. And we could look at the intention around the meditation. Do you want to just feel good? If you do, then this this is not your path. Don't even come this direction. Go do something else. This is probably not going to feel so good. If it does feel good. You should come and tell me about it. I'd love to hear your love story with your meditation practice. All that being said, I'm not saying that you might not really enjoy meditation initially. Even the first couple of years can be pretty good. Not for everyone. It, it so has to do with your individual karma and your particular style of how you cover up your Buddha nature. Because you are, everyone is Buddha. Everyone is awake. Nothing sleeps. Everything is awakened. 
It is called the great perfection. In the, oh, I don't know, one of those Tibetan guys say that. Wasn't it Longchenpa? Somebody. But you have to you have to actually see that. It's not a conclusion. You see it. You don't have to conclude that it's snowing. If it's snowing, you see the snow. You might, unless you're four years old, you're probably not going to run around saying, it's snowing, it's snowing, it's snowing. I see the snow, it's snow. Look, it's snowing. Now, if you're four, you might say that. But if you see that it's snowing, you just see that it's snowing. It's a very ordinary. Seeing ultimate nature is very ordinary. It is not some special event. If it's a special event, sometimes in the Japanese tradition, this is called kensho or insight into your true nature, just a sudden awakening to the depth of your existence as a, a so-called relative human being into the great expanse, the great panoramic awareness that may show up, it shows up, it's going to go away because it's the nature of relative truth is to show off and then run and hide. So depending on what you're doing now, what kind of meditation you're doing or what what kind of uh, awareness practice you're doing, whether you're possibly you're doing uh, something, a uh, creation completion practice, one of the ones that is taught here at the monastery fairly regularly upon request is a white Tara, which is a creation completion practice, very simple one, not near as complicated as some of the ones in the Tibetan uh, pantheon of uh, deity yoga. Very simple, direct. You don't need the, the imprimatur of a of a, a a lama or a mahasiddha to come and bless you, so you can do it. You don't need permission to do white tara or green tara or chanrezig, which is avalokiteshvara. <clears throat> Going to need some instruction. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe not. But you need to understand yourself what you want to do. You might want to just turn yourself over to a teacher and have the teacher tell you what to do. And a true teacher who teaches out of what they see, and even a teacher who teaches out of what they know, which is much different, knowledge, uh, is still going to give you the benefit of the doubt and try to help you uh, where you're at insofar as they're able to see where they're at. Because if they don't see where they're at, they aren't going to be able to see what's up with you. And if they really see what's up with you and see your confusion, they will respect your confusion. Not necessarily jump in and try to give you advice, which I've been known to give lots of advice. Very difficult to respect someone's confusion, especially when that confusion is overflowing onto you and making things challenging or difficult for you. So maybe all you do is Get up in the morning or maybe in the afternoon, sit down and just start meditating. Just start. Maybe your eyes are closed. Maybe they're open. Maybe you're doing what we call or what is called shikantaza. Just observe what is coming and going without any um, particular uh, strategy of labeling thoughts or following the breath or any of that kind of manipulation of the consciousness. My recommendation is that you would tighten up the form and, and start it with a bell, with a gong, end it with a bell, 
and use a, uh, a analog clock instead of a digital clock. Those are two things that I re highly recommend. And I can talk about why or not. But it, it needs to be your form and then you need to repeat that day after day after day or every six days or three and a half days or every other day or however you're setting it up and then just stay with that particular form without maintaining it. Just return to that form. When you, when you get up off the cushion, let it hang out. Don't do any um, post-meditation, meditation and action practices, even though it's taught everywhere. My teacher taught meditation and action. I just don't do it as a, as a technique. But if you wanted to do that, well, of course, I would say even someone who's a student of mine, if they want to sit with their eyes closed for a couple of weeks, I would say, go ahead, do that. So there's no, there's no like hard, fast, you know, order that you have, if you're going to do this practice, you have to always do it this way. If a person asks that question, if a person is curious about that person, uh, that uh, question or what that is about, they probably need to look into it rather than have just have me or any teacher just say, no, you need to, to do this or do that. So this, this, uh, this very topic uh, is, uh, leads to uh, questions and responses. So if you have some questions, please uh, bring them up. Otherwise, I'll continue to chatter away. I'm wondering if we have resistance to a practice. Is that generally an indicator that it would be a good practice? For Not necessarily. The causes and conditions that arise, uh, the, the, differ the differentiation that's happening here is so wide uh, that there, that's not necessarily an indication of anything. I mean, it could be, if you see that, you don't really like to do Jizo Dharani or something like that, then, then you could play with it yourself. You could understand it yourself. Just like if you don't like to uh, keep your eyes open uh, in sitting meditation, in Shikantaza, prefer to close them, then I would say experiment with that a little bit. Go ahead, rather than force the situation because it's only right to do it this way, you could go ahead and close your eyes and then watch what happens in the mind stream. Watch the how much easier it is to sit with the eyes closed and how much more entertaining that is and how much more difficult it is because when the eyes are, are closed, all the senses tend to shut down because they're not separate from each other. They're not the same, but they're not separate. Any further questions? In your bowing, is it necessary to have an object of meditation? I wouldn't say it's necessary. Sometimes that's used, like the breath, or sometimes an object, or or a mantra, or there's all kinds of ways that that's worked with. But um, the way Shikantaza works is you sit down. And you have the intention or the attitude to just observe whatever is happening, whatever is moving. So whatever moves, that is your object. And there might be times when there isn't much happening there. Then that would be your object. It would be the thought that nothing is happening. Awareness of thoughts. Huh? And you mind. So if if there is no thought arising or what appears to be, mm -hmm. then should we look for something? No. 
look at look at that situation we might look at the question comes up should i look for something should i be looking is there something wrong or should i be doing, doing something else just receive just whatever's showing up even if it's the feeling of being lost just receive <clears throat> don't modify change anything if the body is being held very still without being rigid and your attitude is to just watch what's happening in the mind or in the or in the room. There's a cat walking around the room. You, you don't have to look directly at them, but you can see them perif peripherally. Totally appropriate. It's called cat meditation. No, it's just whatever's moving is that's you have it's valid. You can watch what moves. Because that's the way life works, that's the way karma works, is to watch what moves. You're actually by simplifying it, holding very still and endeavoring to just watch what shows up in the mind stream and what shows up in the life stream or in your living room or down the hall you're training yourself to see more clearly and more precisely when the body is in motion and up and interacting and functioning more like uh in a dimensional nature then you there's more of a of a possibility that you will see more clearly into of the nature of thoughts as they as you react to things that happen something arises someone says something there's more clarity around it might not be as comfortable because it can be it can be painful to realize how how aggressive your mind can be when it's triggered when that area of aggression that is held down most of the time and med meditation starts loosening that up so that that is more susceptible to um, Causes and, causes and conditions other people, situations more. Vinyabha, uh, another question. Um, you said seeing the ultimate nature is ordinary. Yes. What sees the ultimate nature? Bowie. Just consciousness. There's no, there's no uh, identity there. So therefore there's no requirement for anything. And if there's no identity there, there's no, there's no, um, um, there's no instability in so far as a reaction or uh, to whatever is occurring. So whatever occurs, it is just observed. This doesn't mean that you're some kind of a stone wall that nothing ever happens. If you see something, someone is in terrible need of help, you would immediately go and help them. So you're, you're with whatever is happening rather than you're interpreting it first and then acting after you interpret what it is to see if that is dangerous or not, or if you have uh, what, what the whole dynamic is and have a big philosophy around everything that occurs. So is anything that occurs ultimate reality? Relative and ultimate are not separate, but that has to be seen. Until one actually sees that, there will be the question that you like you have: What is, is that ultimate? What is? Like we talked about earlier today, if you want to see dependent origination, look at one thing at a time. Look at just this. Don't look at anything else. Don't ignore anything else. But just look. If it's incense smoke, if it's uh, snow or icicles falling from your roof or if it's a, a car uh, comes down the street and headlights flash in your window late at night 
just that, just that. It's always, it's always speaking, as has been said way before I got here. Everything, if you see, and if you're on receive, then everything is preaching the Dharma. There isn't anything that isn't saying, not separate, not separate, not separate. There isn't any two things anywhere. Then it's not like a voice is saying that. It's saying the very, very, whatever you're looking at, if you're just receiving that without any lamination, without any protection of your ideas, your concepts, your beliefs, your opinions on top of what arises, you're just seeing clearly what that is, a direct perception into what this is. That can be done. But it doesn't, it isn't likely that it just arises spontaneously with no, uh, no, um, no practice. I think it's possible, but it's unlikely. Further questions? Augie bowing. Augie, what? Were the, were the kind of things you just described about uh, just perceiving and looking at one thing at a time, the kind of things you, you mean at, at the end of your uh, the first instruction in, in your new book, you say, just observe, do it all day. Bowing. It's a question. Bowing. What do you mean by do it all day? What I mean by that is uh, you see that you can't do it. Just like when we're doing sitting meditation, we can't just observe what happens. But if, we're, if we say just observe, then that instruction will help you see that you can't quite do that. We're a failure at that because we keep taking what, observe, what we observe and modifying it by saying, I don't like that. That shouldn't be that way. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. We, we, we keep changing everything into something else, something else, something else, something we don't want, something we want. So when I say do it all day, I'm saying notice the way you can't do this. By observing something, you notice that when you just observe something, you get a whole menagerie of little ideas and thoughts and post-it notes about that, what that, whatever that is, you can't see what that is. If you see what that is, you won't see anything. And I don't mean that everything is gone. I don't know of another way to explain it other than you won't see anything else. It's not the otherness is gone. The manifestation is still there and it is vivid and it is unreal. It is not substantial. It might be solid. Depends on the frequency. But just because something is physical gives it no big credential for being real. I mean, if I can do this on this table, but I can't, I can, uh, there's uh, something else that's real, relatively real, incense smoke. Makes no sound at all. But it's just as real and substantial and just has just as much uh, evidence as being there as that tabletop. It keeps doing that. It goes both directions. It gets more and more dense the further we get down. I'm not saying it's, that's a black hole necessarily. I have no idea, but it, it looks like it gets more and more dense and it goes the other direction. It gets more and more rarefied or, uh, unaffected by the illusion of time. It does not decay. Manifested, what is manifested decays. That's the, that's the good news and the bad news. No matter how bad you feel, it's going away. 
no matter how good you feel, it's going away. Sano Bar. Go ahead, Sano. What is the difference between do it all day and no post meditation, Sano Bar? No what? No post meditation. Same thing. Same thing. Come on, argue with me. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. So how is that the same thing, San Hobart? Yeah, it's two ways of talking about the same thing. Because in both cases, you, you can't, you can't, uh, the one is a description. I'm saying don't, don't set up a standard for doing post meditation. But when I say just do it all day, as I'm saying, just observe all day. And that observation is not is other than just saying observe, you're going to do that anyway. But I'm saying you could put a little bit of an emphasis by saying just observe all day on just whatever's moving, look at it. But it's not a maintenance. You, you can wander away into a daydream, you're looking at the daydream. You could come from the daydream down to the kitchen table and see you've got to do this or got to do that. You've got to clean up the table or you've got to do your laundry. Very ordinary things. But in the midst of those things, we continue to add on and add on and add on. It's about observing that. So I just say I don't teach a, a structured post meditation, like you need to be aware of uh, uh, of your breath or aware of your, uh, as they teach in the Japanese tradition of kinhin, is be aware of the movement of the feet. I'm not saying that's wrong. That might be something you personally need to do. It's a very specific way of moving the feet. Sometimes it is even aligned with with the uh, every time you step down, it's an out breath. Next time you step down, it's the next out breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath, or some way of aligning the breathing with the, and it certainly will give you the illusion of meditation, the concept of meditation. There's a question from YouTube from Lynn in the row. What are your thoughts on chanting and mala beads? I think they're nice. I love mala beads. I have them here. I have these. You no. Know, are these Buddhist jewelry? Maybe. Chanting is just another way. It's an expression that is aligned uh, with uh, with the whole complex of body, speech, and mind. It's aligned with that. And to say something over and over and over and over again uh, does something in the consciousness that kind of smooths things out. It, it does something to the thinking process because the thinking process is aligned with the, the chatter of the mind. It's aligned with, with speech. And so by saying, Omani Pameho, Omani Pameho, Omani Pameho, Omani Pameho, Omani Pameho, then doing it on a mala and counting it, it just brings that whole structure that is usually flying all over the place into discursive thought and they're rambling daydreams about this and about that, and hopes and fears and so on. It brings that into a you could say into a container where you can actually watch that happen. You're producing it and you're receiving it. You're producing the mantra, you're receiving the mantra. And you would align that also if you're doing a tantric practices, you would, that would be aligned with a visualization called, sometimes called deity yoga. So you're identifying with the deity. You can't find your own wisdom mind. So the deity has been created centuries and centuries ago to represent your wisdom mind. And it's a, usually quite highly stylized uh, human form. Sometimes uh, if it's a, a wrathful deity, it might be not look so human. And is that correct, incorrect? 
That's, that's not the point. The point is, do you need to do that? Uh, are you, do you have a teacher who's teaching that? And do you have a strong connection with that particular teacher? Maybe you, maybe you need, I think the connection with the teacher is more important than the practice. Uh, that being said, I would go so far as to say that, that even with, with that being the case, you need to be the one who determines whether to do this or not. That's why I often say, I'll say today, I need to have permission before I can teach. If you show up here, I have some permission. You're at least listening. Then that may never happen again. And they're also symbolic. You know, there's a, a, this little tiny one here was made by, uh, um, I can't get it off. It's all wound up, so just suffice it <laughs> to say that it's too much of a Rubik's Cube to get undone. So sometimes it's, part of it is just a, the memory of something. And sometimes you actually use it to count mantra, uh, mantras with. I don't know you want me to comment on it. You'd have to ask direct questions. Other than that, I don't have nothing is showing up here. Are there further questions? Any of that here? Sure, you, you talk sometimes about give it to the teacher. Does yeah. that show up in a structure like a, a form? Prostration is, is offering is an offering to the teacher. So that's not something I particularly promote. Uh, the closest we come to that is we come into the zendo and we bow. We see the teacher, meet the teacher, we might bow. But you're just bowing to your own Buddha nature. So it's not like you're, this is not about worshiping some kind of golden piece of wood. And it might look like, look like that to people who were used to the theistic orientation towards the spiritual path. But to one who understands what this is, it's a non-theistic approach to spirituality. So therefore, we need something. We need some kind of a representation of the Buddha's teaching of a human being who lived 2,500 years ago, who understood, who had some insight into the nature of being alive, being a living being, and what that fundamentally meant. He began to teach. So we have an image. Wonder by when um, you say uh, an offering to the teacher, is it where we have the intention of doing the form or holding the form for the teacher or as a way to? Could show up lots of ways. It's like you uh, prostrate and say, I take refuge. You know, I'm 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 a refugee from the relative world of getting ahead and making a lot of money and getting famous and, and being a great uh, tennis player or whatever it may be. It's not that that's wrong. You, you could actually practice a spiritual path and do that also. You could you could have a mind training practice and do that. But to just uh, to do that, it seems to be necessary to align yourself in our situation with our. Um, the lineages, the various forms of Buddhism down through the centuries are refuge in the Buddha. You're a refugee from the eight worldly dharmas, success and failure, right and wrong, up and down, back and forth, all of those. And you're going to take refuge in, in someone who is sane, who never, who no longer went to war or goes to war with anything. The Buddha, the awakened one, refuge in the, what he taught, that everything is dependently arisen. There's no separate being anywhere. Nothing comes from its own side as a as an individual little Abner. 
Nobody. There isn't anyone. It's an, it's a, it is an illusion, and it's an incredibly powerful one. No self. There's no solid self, and there's no other. But that has to be realized. It's not something you believe in that. And that's which in the community or the Sangha, uh, the spiritual community, we're all practicing probably under that teacher in order to realize uh, what the Buddha taught. What about how is um, taking refuge um, an offering? Well, you're aligning yourself with that with that particular teaching, that spiritual path. Refuge in the Buddha is the, the awakened one. So you're not, you, you could say it's worship. I don't think it, uh, it comes out in quite the same way because the otherness isn't as strong in that area. There's some, some of that happening, but it's different with each person. I don't promote that to anyone. I mean, if you come in, even if you come in this Zendo and don't bow, uh, I'm not going to correct you. I'm not going to come and say, you have to bow. So it's different with each person. And because of our culture, because in the West, we, this hasn't been around here for a thousand years as it has in Japan or China or um, India or Korea. So it's, we're still, we're still in a, a cultural situation that, is, that supports a, a different approach to spirituality, theistic approach. Not wrong, it's just another way of trying to address what are we, who, who are we, what are we here for, what is this about? Some people can only do this through worshiping a, some kind of a superior being. Buddha is a human being, not a deity, even though some down through the centuries, uh, Buddha has been deified to some extent. What about is offering to the teacher um, a way to strengthen relationship with teacher? Yes. Is there something else that happens when we offer to the teacher? Bye. Depends on the individual and the individual's practice. Sometimes it's just just a raw production, and then it might develop into some kind of a connection with the teacher, connection with the with the Dharma, connection with the Sangha. And you, this is why it's often taught, and especially in the Tibetan tradition, it's taught. We take, do hundreds of thousands of, of uh, offerings, prostrations. The third one of the four of the four nandra practices is offering to the is mandala practice, where you actually deliberately set up a whole world. You create a whole world. And you name it as you're setting it up on a on a mandala plate with rice. You put it around like this and say the the this and the precious minister and the precious king, queen, sun and moon and the whole universe. You cre create the whole universe and then you wipe it off and you offer it. You create everything and you offer it. Creation, completion. Creation, completion. Is that a practice that we need to do? I don't know. I did it, but I don't teach it. I'm probably probably not going to teach it, not because it's not necessary, but be, because I can't teach that until it's time to do that. I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm not, I don't have a train to catch. Well, if it shows up, it shows up. Right now, the most important thing you can do, as far as I'm concerned, just generally, is sit down and practice shikantaza. Some people are doing prostration practice, but it's individual. Nothing is promoted. That's something you're doing. And then Takudo is actually has a, a teacher, a Tibetan Lama who's a teacher, and, and he's doing nandro practice. So he's actually do, practicing in the Kagyu lineage. 
everyone's functioning differently. Yes. Senshi bowing. You've said before that watching thoughts and emotions or whatever shows up in Shikantaza, watching that come and go is creation and completion. It is. In what way is it? Whatever shows up goes away. So creation, completion, creation, completion. And all the, the nandra practices where you're doing, uh, where you're working with that uh, deity yoga form, it's just really extremely uh, intense uh, use of those forms and to contact, so to speak, contact your wisdom mind to actually create a deity that is very magnetic who has uh, implements. This is, you're talking about ancient technology. They didn't know anything about Zoom or let alone computers or even light bulbs a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. So using whatever they can and, and giving a symbolic uh, significance to swords and, and uh, um, ritual objects like the bell and dorje, that one represents wisdom, feminine principle, one represents masculine principle of the, the dorje. It's just using that energy, trying to find a way to find the energy that they were seeing in ancient times and bringing it together in such a way that it could become a spiritual practice so we can totally, completely, thoroughly, and insistently and, and, uh, and uh, intentionally go into our mind with a, an understanding of its sacredness. More? So creation, completion. The simple form is you sit down and whatever moves, goes away, unless you grasp onto it. But you might have to grasp onto it for a while, look at it, turn it over, contemplate it, talk to it, talk with it, talk as that. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of them. At the same time, visually different things that are happening with this particular deity. Do you need to do that? I don't know. Do you? And then when at the end of that, then you would take that whole, that whole uh, mandala, that whole creation, and just dissolve it and sit in the space that's left over. It's like life and death. Life and death. Thought, no thought. Thought, no thought. Form and emptiness. Not right now. It's like a like a sixty cycle light bulb. Looks like it's on all the time, but it's I think it's turning off every sixtieth of a second or something like that. That's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> How is presenting our confusion to the teacher an offering? Or is it? It's, it's, a, it's just a way of connecting with the teacher. Just like uh, the teacher gives the teaching and the student, if they, there's no, nothing required, but then they offer to the, the teacher. They may, there's something in uh, Mahayana, I can't remember how it goes, but sevenfold Mahayana Puja, which is making offerings, making um, on the altar. Uh, I'm not, does anybody remember all of those? Can anybody recite all of them? 
I can't. I don't teach those, so I don't remember the, remember them. But offering just making some kind of connection. This is a, it's an empty teaching. It's a teaching that has no fundamental substance. There's nothing to believe in or buy into, or there's nothing for sale. There's nothing to purchase. It's, it has to do with consciousness only. And it takes a while because we are so attached to form, so attached to right and wrong, should be and shouldn't be. This is why teachings like the come along that talk about no self and do it using an image like the stone woman gets up dancing. It doesn't mean that you're made of stone. It just means there's no, there's no singularity there anymore called a person. But the singing and the dancing goes on like crazy. Even more so because there's no fear of failure. There's no fear of looking funny. There's no self-consciousness at all when it's completely in the midst of a celebration all the time. Don't believe anything that I'm saying. You find out. Kurt, 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 you had said earlier that a true teacher respects a student's confusion. What does a student's confusion look like to a true teacher? Um, like confusion. It depends on the person. It's like you, you can a person can be confused and be a very close student who's devoted to the teacher, who's maybe even ordained, uh, but there's still confusion happening there. So there, there needs to be respect for that confusion to not try to teach that person anything before they're really ready to receive that. And a true teacher, since they're very familiar with confusion because it's something they see but have never gotten rid of because it is unreal, they see that the student is hooked on their confusion and they believe their thoughts and they torture themselves and others with those thoughts. And if a true teacher who teaches out of what he or she sees, not of what they know, you're actually free from knowledge, you're free from what you know. You're liberated from all of that, and you actually see reality all the time, over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. So when the student arises, even if it's only someone who uh, has a tentative uh, connection, you know, it's there, but it's not It's not like we've talked about, not strong enough to receive uh, Jukai. I respect that. You do what you need to do. You do what you need to do with your life. I'm not going to tell you. Anybody that comes this way and asks for Jukai or precepts, uh, refuse them. Some, some, some not right out, not a lot because they seem very sincere. It looks like they really mean this. So maybe not a lot. And then other people, it looks like it's tentative. They need to be turned down quite a bit. And especially turned down if they ask for full ordination as a monk. Other places will, will even tell you to get ordained. Other teachers will actually tell you to receive Jukai. I'm not going to do that. Does that make me right? No, it's just, a, just the way that I work with it. More? Other questions? And you uh, how does a true teacher know when a student is ready to receive a teaching? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no protocol for it. There's no way to no, oh, they live up to the standard. There's no standard for it. When you buy, is it, um, does it become obvious to the teacher? It's obvious, but it's very difficult to describe because with each person, that obviousness is different. 
And sometimes I've uh, given precepts uh, to to people, and they later come back and said, "I don't want that." <laughs> That's not incorrect. It's just, it just doesn't mean I necessarily misjudge them. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Some people I, I've given precepts to that um, I'm not sure where they're at. But it looks like it's better to give them the precepts to give them something to some kind of a reference point on the Buddhist path rather than pull back than other people. But if any, if no, if someone never asks about it, I'm I'm not going to promote it whatsoever. They'd have to actually talk about it or ask. More about that? Are you bowing? So in that, it sounds like perhaps an indication is given by the student to the teacher when they're ready. One of the things that they just insist. You sure you want to do that? Well, I'm not really sure. Well, then you're not going to do it. But if they say, yes, I'm sure. Even if you know that they're probably not so sure, but they know that unless they say they're sure, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and so they have to come up and sign on the dotted line. You know, yes, I want to buy this uh, this land in uh, Florida. So you sell it to them. You never can you never can be sure, but you try to put as much tension there as you can so the person really they really need to do that. And we've had one person come and uh, do it we'll go through all that and then I'm not gonna mention their name, but come back and then eventually come in and formally present the the Raksu back to me and says, I no longer want to be your student. And then uh, of course I'm just delighted because I don't know if he's on here or not. <laughs> I tell him I'm delighted with him giving up, but you know I'm not saying that. But I mean, I, what I was delighted with is just be just to be so genuine and say I just don't want to do this. He said, okay, well, good, give me that. We'll put it on the shelf or something, or you know, do do something with it. Maybe nothing. And uh, and he came. Was it seven months later? Eight months later? Three months? Something like that. Something like that. He came back and changed his mind and wanted to take the vows all over again. So we got the well, dusted it off. <laughs> and we took him through the ceremony again. Why not? He'd already been through once, came back and started over. And, but now he's off in the distance somewhere. I rarely hear from him, but I think he just wanted that rock suit. The artwork I did on it was impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> he knows who he is. So there's no way to make any mistake. A person may have to go through that. I don't know what it's like for. I know how I know how hard it's been for me in the last uh, 80 years, but I don't know what it's like for you. So I have to respect your confusion. If you want help from you, listen to me. I'm telling you as directly and sincerely as I can. But I don't have any promises. I don't. I can't guarantee you a damn thing. Yes. When you're bowing, you say wisdom and confusion are not separate. So, when a student appears before you, how do you know if it's wisdom or confusion you're dealing with? It's always both of them. Wisdom and confusion are not separate, only to the person who's confused. But to the person who is no longer confused, wisdom and confusion are not separate from each other. They can't be. They're, nothing is separate from anything else. If you, until you realize it, you'll continue to spin and go to success and failure, success and failure, right and wrong, up and down, back and forth. Life and death, life and death. Is that true? I don't know. For sure. Maybe I'm just making up shit. 
Son Hubei. Ano? How do you see, how do you discern between wisdom and confusion, San Hubei? Wisdom is really wise. Confusion is really crazy. So anything crazy is crazy and insane and going off the, off the track and, and, you know, you name it, whatever. And wisdom is something that just doesn't do much. Just, just, it just receives. Wisdom just receives, but the, the the to take you further down the uh, the Chisholm Trail here, wisdom actually receives the confusion, and it, if it starts to receive the confusion and starts to get freaked out that it's going to get contaminated by confusion, then it turns into what ego, and then ego will fight with the confusion, try to correct it, try to fix it, and if it figures out a way to to change one part to be a little bit better than the other part, it'll start to sell that to people. Not wrong. It's not wrong. Some people, that's the only way you can work with them. You, you have to meet people where they're at in their confusion, not ready for an awareness practice. They need some help. This is why something like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy actually helps people relatively in this relative world. It helps them for a while, but it doesn't help you with death. And death comes without warning. And if you don't, if you if you block that off, then it, it won't be a problem until until it starts showing up at the the end of your bed, like in the, the Christmas Carol. Uh, who was it? Was his name Scrooge McDuck? I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That <laughs> guy. So until so these dreams, these nightmares start happening, uh, this person was able to just isolate themselves from anything and just be greedy and controlling and so on. So wisdom, confusion, come up together. It's called co-emergent. They come out together. And when they do that, the, there is no being who thinks they're wise. There's no being who thinks they're crazy or confused. There's no being. There's just this, and it's not separate. And it may look like it to you. Uh, I'm not concerned. When things are seen as not separate, can they show up as more distinct? Yes, they can be more vivid and more, more set apart because one is no longer concerned about the dynamic that's showing up there. You're not concerned about softening it up so it isn't quite so difficult. No, you're actually you're willing to have that. Just whatever arises, it, it has, as I've said recently, the one I've, different things I've been saying, it has, if it shows up, it has a ticket to ride. It, it, nothing, everything shows up with permission. It's the permission is stamped on it. If it shows up, it's dependently risen and it's, it needs to be there based on the otherness that we think is other when it's actually just dependently risen. There, there is no any, there is no something else. How do you do that? How do you do that when this is over here? And, and the, the gong is over here, and this has to occur for there to be that third thing, the sound. What is that? What is something we just totally accept every day? It's just ordinary things happening. But that is that is a, an amazing uh, demonstration of magic, ordinary magic. And it's it's a way dependent origination appears in the big lie. To use that phrase of otherness, 
of separation rather than seeing that that is ultimate truth. That is ultimate. That is realization. Human bowing. Human. How does intention inform the forms we do? Um, so I talk about intention as being uh, not cause and effect, but just uh, cause, just intend, intend to see, intend to practice the sutras, intend to uh, chant, intend to recite the Heart Sutra and to uh, Daishin Dharani and the the and the the uh, uh, the lineage chant and the, the mother lineage chant and um, all the other forms that we as a way of continually coming through the whole dynamic of being alive, saying words that that are coming out of this incredible wisdom tradition over and over and over again. So it's the intention to do that. It's the intention to see what is true for yourself. There's nothing here to believe. Someone says, well, what do Buddhists believe? I say, not much, if anything. It's not a belief system. I'm not saying that in some cultural situations, that's the only way that it could show up as a belief in the Buddha as a, some kind of a savior situation. So that might have to take place in order for Buddhism to even show up here. It might have had to, as a, as a non-theistic approach, it might have had to go through different kinds of theism and then come back out of it because the original teaching of the Buddha is everything is dependently risen. There is no separate being. There is no creator. Go ahead. Human and does the do the forms that you're talking about give back to the intention? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think sometimes something about doing a form triggers something in my what feels like an intention. Okay, is that? Is that happening or is that just my imagination thought? Both. Your imagination and what's happening are not two different things. They just look like it. And it's very threatening because how, we, how in the hell are we going to get any, any ballast here? How can we find out what is true if we don't have truth, truth and false, true and false. But what we have is relative truth, which is partially true, relative truth. Is, is provable. This fire is hot. Water is gets things wet. Water itself isn't wet. I was told by a young man not too long ago. Earth is hard. Wind moves. Metal goes clink. Further questions about metal goes clink? <laughs> yes, sir. Does intention run out? The, the intention is a good one. The intention is the vow. You just becomes you just become the vow. So there's nothing to do left to do. There's nothing left to do. Even Coben uh, translating the the, the the mantra in the, in the Heart Sutra, um, gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond. Awake, so be it. And his translation was um, falling apart, falling apart, falling apart. Nothing to do. Everything all at once. Something like that. Is that pretty close, Dr. Dell? Are you sleeping? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to do. (laughs) Nothing to do. And he was doing that. So 
And it's a how, how would that possibly work? It's like um, it's it's interesting because if you were to meet Coben, he, he kind of re represented that. It was like it wasn't anything to do particularly. Pretty amazing human being, farmer teacher. Yes. Jason, then. Go ahead, Jason. If you are seeing clearly what arises, how does the how does a corresponding action arise, Valley? The eight corresponding actions. No, and like any corresponding action, like that might correspond with what you're seeing clearly. Oh, you may you may interact. You see what's happened. You you if you see what happens, you'll know without even thinking. You'll know whether you're whether you need to enter into that and function in some way to support something or uh, you're part of dependent origination. And so, but you also may uh, stay in the back seat, and not say anything. You might, wouldn't necessarily be a back seat driver. You'd actually come move into some kind of activity out of the awareness. Not out of a conclusion, not out of analysis, not out of thought patterns, not out of how you appeared to others. How you appear to others wouldn't even wouldn't show up particularly because the self-consciousness is gone. Did that answer your question? Um, Jason Bowing, when you say without thinking, does does say like your past knowledge um, and memories does that inform whatever's happening in that moment? Completely. It's not separate. It, it, it totally, it functions. Uh, I've used the image of the movie, The Matrix, because just everything just uh, works with each other. The whole thing just functions. And we tend to go in and kind of sh sh take it apart because we're trying to figure out how to get control of it. But functionally, uh, 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 functionally it just works. Just like consciousness works, we don't have to go in and tell our tell our body to digest food. And if we did, we'd probably starve. We wouldn't know how to do that. How much acid do we need in the stomach? What kind of acid? We don't have control over our glomeruli in our kidneys. It's a damn good thing we don't, because we would screw that up for sure. And then we'd be what? We blame the nephrologist, right? No, but you know, we it's it's about. We have some say so, but you don't want a lot of, I mean, this is all real and we think we are this person, but we don't want to have a lot of say so about this. We're, you know, even taking it to a doctor, which I can go into a whole lot of whining complaints I have about that. You probably do too. Even, even a doctor might look at it and misunderstand or diagnose some, something and actually hurt you or based on their grasping it being right and wrong. And well, we have to do it the way they've been doing it for the last 20, 30 years or hundred years. When actually that uh, there's a different understanding about whatever may be anything from medications, like the whole misunderstanding around, uh, around the, uh, the whole, all the COVID stuff. We don't need to go into that or, or just to go into the, the, the op opioid stuff that was misunderstood. It looked like it was just a nice harmless, uh, painkiller instead of uh, all the other things. I don't want to go into that, but just a misunderstanding of how to participate with other things. That's why it's best to don't do much. Even uh, even uh, if I may say, say so, I have three people here who are counselors. 
uh, who actually sit down with people who are having difficulty. And I don't think I'm uh, stepping beyond uh, to say that the first thing that a counselor would do would just be listen, <laughs> receive and listen. Is that fairly correct? Try to find, find out by listening, who is this person? What What is their particular dynamic instead of just applying the same thing to every everyone? I just experienced that not too long ago when I had difficulty with my Quervain's syndrome in my wrist. I went in to see a surgeon, basically trusted them. I mean, as a surgeon and sat down instead of addressing it, the problem just took a wild guess, looked like to me and to you. So I think that's just arthritis. And without even asking me, stuck a needle in my thumb and made the whole thing, just blew it out of shape. Uh, it was starting to get a little bit better and it just went back. Uh, and it was like they, they did it wrong and misunderstood. I trusted him to do that. So that whole area is uh, all of that relative truth is still full of misunderstanding and politics of all kinds and, and greed and trying to make money and trying to get in control. I don't need to tell you any more about that. But the spiritual path is, can be full of that kind of charlatanism also. And so I say, trust yourself. Trust me. Trust. Get some help if you need it. I'd be happy to help you. I just love to give advice to people. <laughs> and my advice is, don't do anything unless you have to, including come this way. Don't do it. You live your life. You you decide what you need to do next with your life. Might as well be in charge of something. Any final questions before we jump out of this plane? Okay, we'll close. May the merit of this penetrate into all places so that we and every sentient being together can realize the Buddha's way. Please come down out of the light and protect Sokokoji Buddha's Temple Monastery, our Sangha families, friends, and visitors. Heal everyone who's unhappy, sick, or suffering. If you value the teachings of Sokozan and you would like to support his teaching work and the functions of Sokokoji Buddha's Temple Monastery, which also supports monk and practice residents, please consider giving a donation by visiting our website at sokokoji.org.